Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the very best podcast you can listen to on a Tuesday morning about video games and video game development. This is Larry Charles, one half of the Game Dev Unchained podcast team. And of course, there's two sides to every coin. Mr. Brent Fem. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to this week's episode. I want you to give me a warm welcome to our special guest this week, Matthew Burns. Hey, hey everyone. How's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. Welcome to the podcast. First time. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. I have to add that first time because we we uh, we love having repeat guests. We do it every now and then. So cool. So Matt, so- you is joining us. Uh, and uh, before we get into the topic, why don't you go over yeah uh, a little bit about your background to introduce yourself to our audience here? Yeah, walk sure. our users through your resume. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, um, so I've been a game developer for a pretty long time. Um, I've done a bunch of different roles right now. I'm a writer and, and composer, uh, for a small indie studio called Zactronics here right. in Seattle. And before then I worked on uh, a lot of AAA stuff. Um, I worked at Bungie for a while. I worked on some of the Halo games and a little bit of Destiny and, nice. um, Prior to that, I was at Activision in Los Angeles, and I worked on some of the very, very early Call of Duty games um, back in the day. And uh, I've kind of been around all over. I, I also um, do some writing, and I wrote some Twine games that have gone around a little bit, um, the most famous of which is called The Writer Will Do Something, which is a mm-hmm. Twine game about being a writer on a big AAA game, which is pretty fun, and which I think you guys should play. I'm gonna go look at it right now. <laughs> so awesome, man! So it's good to have yeah. another COD veteran on the podcast. Oh yeah, yep. Trey yeah. Arc. Well, oh nice. <laughs> Matthew speaking from the early Call of Duty developer, so he's one of the OG with the real G. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Of... <laughs> yeah, before the water got diluted. <laughs> This was back when Call of Duty was World War II stuff. It, they hadn't even oh, nice. done Modern Warfare yet. This is yeah. like Call of Duty 1, 2, and 3. World of War. That, World of War, yeah, that kind yeah. of that, those titles. Hey, they're good ones, man. I think they're pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, they're not as good as, as Modern Warfare. Um, but yeah, they've, you know, we, we had a lot of. Uh, tough things about those those projects you know not a lot of time to make them and and, all, and that kind of stuff uh, my so. quick question for you is uh mm-hmm. you, you talk a lot about writing for games and then now i hear you're going into you're doing composing when mm-hmm. did mm-hmm. that transition occur um let's see well so i've been i mean my whole life i've like 
written music as well uh, as as writing, and it's just kind of like one of the things that I did. Um, while I was at Bungie, one of my duties was I was the producer for the sound team, so I wasn't actually making sounds or writing music myself, but my understanding of like that that discipline really helped me um, be an effective producer for the sound team. Oh, nice. And so being able to like actually do the music now is kind of like, it's always been something that's been in the back of my mind that I've wanted to do. And so now I'm doing it here. Um, but it's always been, you know, a part of my life, like doing the music and doing the writing and, and the other stuff that I do is all, those are all like continual threads, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really cool, man. You're one of the few who gets to say, actually, I'm going to lateral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it can be tough. You know, if you if you establish yourself and uh, as one thing, people want you to keep doing it. So uh, but it's it's rewarding, too, because you get to you get to try something new and learn, learn new things. Yeah. Well, speaking of specialization, I came across your article on Gama Sutra and it was about the Japanese game industry. And mm -hmm. uh, if we go back and dial all the way back to the PS2 era, that is when I grew up on a lot of Japanese games. And that, to me, was like the golden era of Japanese games. Like, mm -hmm. I felt like everything that was coming out of that country was top-notch. Everything was well-designed, executed. And I was mostly playing Japanese games during that time. Mm -hmm. And that shift from PS2 to PS3 is something that you touched on in your article that was very interesting that I never really thought about. I just passively like, oh, something happened. All right, moving on. So mm -hmm. before we get into it, like how did you even get to the point where you were studying, you know, the market over there? And Yeah. Um, I mean, it was kind of, I sort of have a similar history to you, right? Like I really liked playing Japanese games on PS1 and PS2 and kind of, my experience, so let's see, around like 2006, I guess, is sort of when the PS3 came out, um, and I was working at Treyarch at, the, at that time, and I kind of had a close-up view of, of the launch of the PS3 and, and how that sort of affected things, and I was watching the Japanese game industry struggle to kind of transition to this new console and things like that, so I've, I've always been interested in, in how games are, are, can be made. Um, it's one of the things that I've been curious about, you know, since I started working in the industry. So paying attention to the way uh, the Japanese industry works and, and things like that has always been a, an interest of mine. So by the time I wrote this article uh, that you're talking about, I think it was 2010, so six years ago now. Um, but that was a time where uh, a lot of people were very pessimistic about Japanese game development. It had been really tough for a while. Uh, a lot of a lot of the the games that saw a lot of lots of success on on PS2, they just weren't crossing over. Uh, mm -hmm. They were too expensive. They weren't you know they just they weren't doing the kinds of numbers that they used to be. And so, around this time in like 2010, like all these like big Japanese uh, developers were saying like it's just it's it's really tough and and we're behind and and we're in decline and and so on so yeah i mean my that's where my interest comes from and that's kind of those those that's the thinking that sort of led to that article that i wrote yeah yeah it was a really good it was a really oh, good thanks. article very well with <laughs> um thank you and you you pointed out some things like 
I I think with Brandon saying PS2, I kind of got on the Japanese train, obviously very early with Nintendo, right? Like mm-hmm. Nintendo and Sega are the first big consoles that come out that I guess saw international success. It's fair to say international success, given that it comes from Japan and hits Americans. But mm-hmm. that's where I get on, right? That's where they were at their prime. That's where they're at their top. They carried over to Super Nintendo and even PS1 with like Final Fantasy VII was one of the best video games I ever played at the time. And I was like, it just doesn't get any better than this. It was 3D gaming, you know? It was, <laughs> it was incredible, right? Like, you couldn't tell me those FMVs weren't, like, real. Like, I could <laughs> I'm sure it looks bad now, but, like, at the time... Oh, were, no, yeah, at the time they were incredible. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember that, too, so for sure. I always wondered if, like, it's not that I say that they didn't have opportunities or they didn't have good ideas or that their processes were screwed because they were turning out incredible stuff. And at the time they were ahead of everyone else. You know what I mean? But you kind of did hit on a couple of things where they're like, but just how we're set up to be like, Hey, all of the character artists, you go over here, all the designers, you go over here, all of this. And we're going to do it from scratch. We're not going to use an engine. We're going to like, I can see like how those dominoes as time passes. Yeah. It's going to hold you back like big time, Mm -hmm. big time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, yeah, they, it, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, I think you 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 hit it. There was a lot of like multiple factors, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of from the way that the teams were run to the approach to technology to the the types of games that people were interested in playing, like the market and all all kinds of things like that. Yeah, I, I never felt like Japan didn't have a good sense of what would do well in the world. But I did see that once audiences got, you know, or once developers started showing up from all over the world, and then we started getting new flavors and new tastes of gaming experiences, that's when I saw Japan really having trouble to maintain, you know, like a number one spot, so to speak. Mm-hmm. In my opinion. Yeah, like yeah. a lot of the practices that you described uh, was like really traditional ways of developing in Japan, but that didn't translate into bigger teams. So I, I kind of yeah. want to ask more about that. Like, what exactly were the practices in Japanese gaming market, uh, gaming development that did not make the cut? You know, I think a big a big one was uh, just the size of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, PS2 games were still at a time, and they were they were sort of at a level of fidelity where you could get away with making a PS2 game with a with a fairly small team. You know, like right. maybe yeah. 10, 10 people or so could make a PS2 game. Um, obviously, much much larger PS2 games were made by much larger teams. But this was yeah. a point in the industry where teams were really ballooning in size, and um, just bigger and bigger teams started to work on these games and um as you both know when the team size increases you know it gets harder and harder to coordinate everybody to get everybody uh on the same page all the time and so uh there was a big um uh effort i think not just in japan but everywhere right there was a, right. there was a lot of interest in like what are these production methodologies that we need to use in order to figure out how to get hundreds of and hundreds of people effectively working together on a on a game yeah. and so that was just a that was just a challenge that i think everyone had to had to figure out and i think that there was a certain um you know there there's a certain way of like well we've always done it this smaller way 
and it's always worked out fine. So there's, you know, there's no reason to, to change. But when yeah. your team suddenly gets way bigger, like the challenges really change a lot. Yeah, like it changes a lot and the stakes are higher. So you're running a team that is more expensive every day. So if it isn't a hit, it can really cripple a studio. And it's not yeah. like the Western game companies were completely unscathed during this development. There were a lot of closures on our side of the, the ocean too. Like, But we were able to squeeze out hits and other, some companies were able to adapt to this transition mm -hmm. better than the uh, Japanese market. Yeah. I think a lot, you know, so several of the people that I spoke to who had worked at Japanese companies said that from their viewpoint, um, Japanese companies were just a little bit more inflexible, just the way that they were structured. You know, if you're on the such and such team, you don't really, you, you're not as empowered to question the decisions that your boss makes or you you don't you know you're not really supposed to work across discipline with another team without going through your boss first there's just a little bit more of an expectation of kind of this uh, formality of like the organizational structure um that's something that people said to me at that at the time mm -hmm. i think perhaps now like things have, have loosened up a little bit more I, I get the sense that you know there are a lot more um people from outside of japan working in the industry for example, uh, these days, people move to Japan and they go work at Japanese game companies and they bring in their own ideas and their own ways of working and stuff. So I feel like it is, it, you know, it is changing over time. Um, but at that point, that was a that was kind of like a frustration point that a lot of people that I spoke yeah. to for the article talked about. Well, what I will say is I definitely feel like in Japan, there, there's no lack of like good ideas that come from them, right? So, for example, huge, huge gaming phenomenon called Pokemon comes from Japan, <laughs> right? And it and for a twenty, what is it like twenty years of Pokemon monster collecting, it's still seeing incredible successes, iteration <laughs> after iteration after iteration. This, to me, is a gaming example of something that comes from Japan. That's like, hey, look, this is a core experience. And it's such a fun core experience. It's compulsive, it's competitive, and it's simple. We're going to run this until the cows come. Like, this is a gravy train for them, right? Mm -hmm. And I didn't see that being something that couldn't be repeated elsewhere. I, mm -hmm. I see that as a game that can be successful in Japan and internationally because the, the opportunity for there to be like a uh, lost in translation type of experience like oh well in japan this would do great this type of comedy is good in japan or this type of experience does great in japan but not so much domestically i feel like a game like pokemon because it focuses so much on the core experience that it leaves little room for those like opportunities to miss or disconnect with the player you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm, i feel like mm -hmm. overwhelmingly so that type of stuff is like it comes out of japan and it does really well in my opinion i think there's a couple other examples I could think of if I had a minute, but that one more specifically just comes up. Zelda, you know, uh, any of the mm -hmm. first part Nintendo stuff always kills it, regardless mm -hmm. of whatever platform it ends up on. Like, the core experience stuff, they nail it, you know? Mm -hmm. What do you, I mean, what do you think? I think absolutely. Um, I think that there are a lot of really great core strengths that Japanese developers tend to be really good at um and pokemon is a great example of that all the pokemon themselves are so well designed yeah. um people grow up and become adults and they still remember their pokemon right they remember yeah. the names they remember how they were um 
a, you know, a Western example of like designing a lot of monster characters would be something like Skylanders. And, yeah. you know, who remembers their Skylanders in the same way they remember their Pokemon? I think that, <laughs> yeah, Pokemon is just a great example of this kind of character focus um, that Japanese developers can bring to the to the fore um and you know they're, and they're they're always introducing new pokemon and they're they're always very memorable and yeah. interesting and um there, there's there's a lot to that and so that's that's one tremendous strength i think of of japanese developers that uh has helped them in in the in you know in the years when uh other other things maybe weren't going so well uh yeah. just the ability to do that and and like you said all the nintendo first party things that focus on um the fundamentals you know the the famous story of of just like concentrating on on mario's movement in uh, in mario 64 all of that kind of stuff um are are great strengths that um you know that they've continued to rely on and continue to to develop yeah like for me going i i have some gripes about the pokemon phenomenon um, using that as example of a success and a failure on Japanese uh, game development. So it took a Western company to turn Pokemon into this crazy smartphone, amazing game, right? And <clears throat> Nintendo has been sitting on this license. And yeah, they've been releasing their Pokemon games, but along the same veins of what they've been doing with their 3DS. But they have completely ignored the smartphone market until recently. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until it, it was like their greatest hit that they've never made that they, they didn't make yeah. right like their stocks shot up after the the game came up uh, came out and uh, they really only saw they only saw like a small percentage of that because it was another developer that actually made it so mm-hmm. it, it, it's kind of like because of their stubbornness in a way they kind of miss the boat on a license they they created right it's not like the ancient labs came <laughs> up with something uh different right it was everything right. that they've designed from beginning like 10 years ago but they just adapted it to to today's technology and so it, it's kind of like what they've been struggling with just adapting to technology or just techniques uh, lately, and I sure, do yeah, see and improving, but yeah, it's gonna, it's still gonna take a while. I mean, and and to speak of Nintendo in particular, I mean, they they're one of the most traditionalist of Japanese game companies. So even you know, even in comparison to other Japanese studios, Nintendo are the most you know the most traditional and the most um, conservative when it comes to trying new things and and exploring. Um, Exploring the new stuff that's that's kind of like coming down the pipe, like like mobile or or whatever. That's not to say that Nintendo won't try crazy things. I mean, obviously the Nintendo hardware um, over the years has been uh, quite wacky in some cases. Um, but in terms of just like embracing like these these trends, like the like mobile, for example, yeah. Um, there's just um, I mean, I think that there are, there are powerful reasons too why they might be suspicious of mobile or or, or might. You know, want to just kind of wait and see how the mobile market shapes up. Um, there were a lot of early successes in mobile that aren't really around anymore these days. So I, th- you know, I, th- I think maybe looking back, you can say that they were slow or that they are still slow uh, with regard to mobile. But they're also not necessarily, you know, making tremendous mistakes uh, by by going too far into it and then, uh, you know 
uh, having things not work out. So I don't know. It's just one one way to approach that sort of thing. All I know is if they give me a Mario Party on mobile that has ad hoc support, forget it. It's, it's <laughs> You'll never yeah, see me again. Amazing. Yeah, that'd be great. All right, so I want to talk about something that you pointed out in your article where they're saying that, you know, Japan is having population problems and then also the industry itself kind of overworking people are setting up these expectations of you'll take it and you'll love it, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's driving people away from continuing their career in the industry and then also it's closing or narrowing the door of people who are interested in even going in in the first place and they're actually having a talent issue. Mm -hmm. I would... I would never think in a million years that finding people who want to make video games will be a hard thing to do. It is. <laughs> it can be. I mean, if the hours are really long and the pay is really low, right? I mean, yeah, it turns yeah. out it, uh, it turns out it's a job just as much as any other job, right? Like, I think like the excitement of you know, if you if you found me when I was like seventeen years old and you said, "Hey, do you want to work at Square on the next Final Fantasy title or something like that?" Right? I would have been like, "Sign me up right away." This that's yeah. incredible. Um, after two years or three years of of just you know crunch time and and um, no overtime pay and and just backbreaking work and and. Uh, low pay and, and all these other things like you know my my enthusiasm could be quite diminished and um so i think that like i i say i say this in the article because um this was around the time also when when this was a huge issue in 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 western games as well uh this crunch time issue which is not to say it's not an issue today as well but around the time when this article was written there was a huge um controversy this ea spouse thing Yes. Um, all of that. So, so it was really very much a huge, a huge part of the conversation um, at that time. And um, Japanese companies have it pretty bad when it comes to quality of life. A lot of, a lot of times, um, I would say that in general, it's it's maybe improving slowly. But uh, you know, it's it's a, a game development thing. It's a cultural thing. It's a, a lot of different factors lead to it. Yeah, there was definitely a time where when Japanese were were, uh, thriving in the game industry, they were making games for Japanese people mostly, and we just ended up liking it over here. And Mm -hmm. so when they felt uh, they need to reach outside of their country to make global sales, uh, you mentioned in your article that there was a struggle. And uh, I I was wondering if you can kind of go over that too where Westerners had an easier yeah. time making games that had international appeal where and Japanese developers kind of had a harder time. Yeah, this was a time when it was very, very polarized. There's still, it's still somewhat polarized. Um, but uh, around this time, I think a lot of people, a lot of Japanese companies were trying to create things that would work in the U.S. and that led them to down some, some interesting roads. I think I talk about in the article, there was a, Square had a made a had a front mission game that was made yeah. in the US that turned into like this weird like sort of third person action game. It wasn't it wasn't a, a cool mech uh, SRPG at all. It was like this weird action game that felt like a movie tie-in for a bad movie that didn't actually exist. Right. Um, and there was um, you know the Devil May Cry that uh, Ninja Theory made instead of Capcom. 
Um, there was there were other things that they were that you know that Lost they tried Planet to 3. do. Lost Planet Three, Lost Planet, yeah, all of the Lost Planet games are are attempts at uh, at making sort of international uh, kind of action movie ish sort of uh, sort of games. Um, one example I'll, I'll always remember is um, do you remember the Onimusha games? Yes, yeah, I love so, Onimusha. Yeah. So, yeah, I like those. I like those games too. Onimusha three randomly has uh, Jean Reno in it, uh, just as this random French person also fighting <laughs> samurai zombies in France. Yeah, uh, and there's like a time travel thing that explains why that's happening. Um, and that I, I heard from someone who worked on that 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 was really just a transparent attempt to try to get Western people interested in in Onimusha. <laughs> Like they felt that that would be that was like a way to to you know pique people's interest in Onimusha to put this French actor in it. Right, right. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, right. Like so. So that's kind of funny and adorable. But uh, yeah, there. This was a time when there were they were, they were making all these kinds of attempts like that. That that I think were maybe a little bit transparent and and didn't play very well. Yeah, like Larry wow. always mentions this as a fact. He loves Final Fantasy VII, but he also has like his problems with Final Fantasy VII when it comes. Mm-hmm. To- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely something that's always lost in translation is how African American people like being portrayed oh, yeah. in video games. Oh yeah, and and yeah. anime and movies. And- mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, wrapping. Yeah. It's a real problem. <laughs> it is. But it really is yeah. like they look over there and they gloss over. All right, what sticks out, and they, they just try to like go with the stereotypes mm-hmm. to make sure that-, <laughs> that they nail the design. I guess. Well, it's like if 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 the only thing you knew about yeah. this country, the U.S., is about like is from what you saw in movies. Yeah, you you would have a weird view of like what what the U.S. was, and if you, if you didn't have anybody on the team. To kind of like tell you, or you don't, you or you do have those people, but you don't listen to them, which is the other the other problem. Um, you know, you'll you'll do all these, you'll make all these terrible mistakes, and and things yeah. won't won't feel good at all. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid Barrett. <laughs> it's yeah. What's yeah. Fun, yeah, I think a lot of it too. Like they they were so on top of the world with game development and. When the transition happened, I felt like there was some pride, right? Because they were leaders. And now mm-hmm. I felt like they were evening out to the point where they're more open to advice and suggestions. And I think so. Yeah. I would hope so, for sure. Um, but I do think so. I mean, I think another... To, to, to actually to, to speak a moment to like representation and things like that... Um, one of the one of the interesting things that happened like sort of between PS2 and PS3 is that you had a lot more emphasis on things getting more realistic mm-hmm. um, because you're able to do that. And so in on the Super Nintendo, you might have been able to sort of do something that was very open to interpretation. Right. But as graphical fidelity and you start hiring actors and, and actors start saying lines, real lines, you know, instead of just like little bits of text at the bottom of the screen, suddenly you're you're playing with a lot more uh, things going on. You're playing with the way people look very in a very detailed way. 
Yeah. Um, and, and that, you know, that gives you a lot of power, but it also gives you, uh, to use the cliche phrase, it gives you a lot of responsibility as well to, to ensure yeah. that you are uh, representing things in a, in a good way. Um, you know, if a character is just like 20 pixels tall on a, on an old game console, like it, it, you know, like I said, it's open to interpretation. Like, is that, is that bad? Is it not like you, you might not even be able to tell. Um, but as you start to as you start to like sort of make these characters real and give them voices and give them give them physical attributes, give them hair, give them the ways of talking, you have to be really careful about how you know how you do those things and, and make sure that you're doing them right. And yeah. that's another that's another tricky thing. And I think that is something that that is an area where um, a lot of developers, Japanese developers included, sort of got tripped up um, in in that sort of transition. Yeah, I also, I also say this like before the the Microsoft Xbox. When I think of all the consoles that I know exist, I think every single one of them that I could point to was Japanese. Panasonic Real, which is a stretch Japanese, like the Neo Geo Japanese, Nintendo mm -hmm. NES, SNES, uh, six, 64 Japanese, PlayStation, PlayStation Two Japanese, right? Like. Mm -hmm. And all the big cons, Sega, Sega Saturn, Sega 32X, Japanese. They basically were the gatekeepers, right? Like, I remember yeah. when the Nintendo came out, you had to use, like, specific Nintendo chipsets in order to make your game run. And That's right, yeah. We had a, uh, a, a, an artist who I call SpacePod who came on our podcast, and he was talking about how they were able to, like, circumvent that with their own chip that did work on Nintendo and all the litigation that they went through, but they were just turning out games. So, mm -hmm. wrapping this all up, because I know I've been talking for a, a couple of moments, I think that them being the gatekeepers as far as, like, the technology and the platform, it gives them, yes, a sense of pride, and they kind of got the industry started, right? So they had a head start on everybody, so that's why I see, like, their products being superior. But then you do have Microsoft, who comes out with the Xbox, and everyone was making PC games, we then go into console games and it becomes fair play past a certain point. And I guess yeah. that that kind of, I think the Xbox, I remember around then was when like gaming became like an international thing. Game development everywhere was when I specifically took a lot more notice of, hey, this isn't just Japanese stuff all the time. It's everybody's stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, the Xbox sort of opened it, like you said, it, it, it opened up things up for PC uh, mm -hmm. developers a lot, and a, and a lot of sort of genres that were popular on PC. I'm thinking specifically of first-person shooters um, started to come, started to filter through. You know, yeah. there really weren't a lot of FPSs on on PS2. Like right toward the tail end of the PS2, yeah, yeah. Is when they started actually putting them on consoles at all. Like um, the the Previous games that are actually first person on console are, are few and far between, right? There's GoldenEye and Halo and things like yeah. that. Um, right, right. So um, having the Xbox sort of open things up to PC developers and like a, lot, a whole new world of developers and a whole new style of like kind of game gameplay opening up mm -hmm. also had a big effect on like the market, what people wanted, and things like that. Is there an area of gaming that you think or know that? the Japanese market still incredibly dominates. That I, hmm. Well, that you would say, like, yeah, right now, they're just killing it in X, Y, or Z. Um, 
you know, anime style. If you want an anime yeah, style yeah. game, you play a Japanese yeah, game. Yeah, I mean, there's, they just completely own that, and that's that's always been a, their complete, uh, you know, only Japan kind of thing. I would say that, and then um, fighting games, right? Fighting games, fighting game, fighting games. Yeah, um, and uh, even even up to a point, um, third person action like Dark Souls. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm a big Dark Souls fan myself. I, I really feel that those are kind of the the they're certainly at the top of their like kind of category of, of games. I would say, yeah, those categories. Yeah, I still feel um, that maybe, they're so dominant with the design. Which game? Sorry, I was just gonna say rhythm games. Maybe. Rhythm games, yeah. Oh yeah, DDR and all that. Is DDR even a thing still? Am I old man by asking that question? Uh, no, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I'm not sure that it is. <laughs> well, I, I definitely can say this. Uh, SquareSoft, before was Square Enix, was like the highest regarded video game development company I could think of for most of my childhood. They were Blizzard to me before I got introduced to Blizzard and. You know, now Blizzard is the highest regarded company that I can think of. But they're, I think they still dominate in coin op stuff like time crisis. I don't care where I am. If there's a time crisis machine, <laughs> dollars are going in, you know? Uh-huh. It's, uh-huh. it's, they still have that. And I love the, the, some of the crazy stuff that they think of with the video game machines. Like I have seen, you know, the traditional Japanese drumming is like a video game mm-hmm. or like, you know, all sorts of stuff. You just coin off for them. It's still still very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought of some Maybe. more. Oh, uh, okay, shmups. here we go. 2D shmups. Oh, yeah, shmups, yeah. Um, so that's like Metal Slug type stuff or or even like... Uh, what's yeah, or just the, the, just the 2D, like kind of the bullet hell stuff. Yeah, yeah, Ikaruga um, and... Uh, yep, yep, Ikaruga and, and uh, Toho stuff. And all of that stuff. Einhander, yeah, yeah. Einhander. I like oh, that no. game. Yeah. yeah, go look uh, that up, listeners. If you don't know what that game is, go look it up. It was a dope game. It was. It was a. It was a two D shooter made by Square. Very cool. Um, or published by Square. And it, um, another thing like that Japanese companies do very well, just kind of speaking in general, is um boss fights and boss designs. Oh hell yeah. Um. Somehow, Western like Western developers just don't do boss fights, or they don't like boss fights, or 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 they don't um, invest a lot of time in them. Yeah, um, there are a few. When I was working at Bungie, there are those of you who are very familiar with Halo know that there are a few moments in Halo where there are quote boss unquote fights. boss fights. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and they are very. Um, <laughs> Crude uh, by 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 many people's estimation, um, and I, you know I got to watch those be designed. Uh, but some of, there's a sense of like boss pacing and design, and, and just a lot of time invested in in boss fights mm-hmm. in Japanese games. Um, I think it, you can tell when you play those types of like action games that like a lot of time has to be spent. On a boss, yeah. probably yeah. about as much time as you spend on the level that, that's leading to the boss. Um, but I, I haven't like big big Western action games just don't have these like boss sequences mm-hmm. uh, to the same level of quality. Again, gen, just speaking on a general. Sure. Uh, yeah, like I'd have to get specific 
to offer counterpoints. Like I could say, you know, well, God of War, right? Like, yeah, God of War has good boss fights in, in my opinion. Yeah, um, yeah. But then when I start thinking of like, okay, well, what else, Larry? Uh, <laughs> years of War, maybe? I don't know. Like it's, you're right. It starts to it starts to break down like right away, immediately. Like yeah. uh, Darksiders, but Darksiders to me was like half God of War, just new paint job, you know? So, right, yeah. Yeah, like um, God, God of War was like, fam- you know, it was like amazing that they were able yeah. to pull that off, right? Right. Yeah, yeah like I, 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 the reason why I love the PS2 game era a lot is because I felt like the games were more complete. Like I felt like from beginning to end, you were using the mechanics that you were taught, and uh, it evolved. I felt like after PS2, a lot of the games kind of make you learn a mechanic to throw away and uh to me that is less skilled <laughs> as a creative you know you're, you're developing mm. something and then you're throwing it away and it wasn't really until batman batman is probably my recent example where i felt like from beginning to end these guys mapped this out on a piece of paper right like there was no way that they were able to come up with these mechanics without all the other systems like collapsing so to mm. me japanese game development uh, signifies that the most, like just complete loop on all the systems, and they just work mm-hmm. well together. And that includes boss fights. Like you can't have a boss fight at the end that is is last minute thrown in. And I felt because maybe you know because of the longer development time, more money spent, they didn't have the time to iron out some of these design elements, but. Yeah, Japanese still rules when it comes to that, and I, I see it a lot with Dark Souls and all these other games that are finally they're they're catching on with technology, mm-hmm. and it's coming back. I think so. I mean, I feel like it's it's interesting. Dark Souls is is um, I would say, I mean, it's it's great, but it's also a little bit of an exception um, on the Japanese side too, right? right. Like. Um, it's not. It's not a typical. It's not a typical game. Yeah, it's, it's like a masochist kind of game. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, You're and it, it's also punishment. kind of. It's got this sort of. Um, I mean, it it has a kind of a, a Western fantasy uh, setting. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it's 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 actually very sort of Western fantasy influenced in in a lot of ways, and I think. Japanese gamers would tell you like like Dark Souls feels Western in in a lot of ways. Like it doesn't feel like a Japanese game to them. There is not one character with boy band hair, and that's where it starts. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's like, what is this? Did this game come from America? Like, uh, oh, but well, it just I don't like... know if I can make that joke without getting in trouble. But... <laughs> well, it seems like the development team over there had a lot more exposure to Western games, and I think that was it. They they were more open to liking western games to to make a western like game mm-hmm. and they had the the freedom to to be able to do that like, yeah i think that some, some japanese developers feel like they have to um satisfy their domestic market yeah which is um fairly different from other other game markets um in the world yeah um i, I kind of want to go into the next topic which is you kind of talked about it about the quality of life so as developers over here in the western uh 
game development world. We are familiar with crunch. We are familiar with bloated budgets. And we're familiar with how games have to succeed or you don't have a job type of mentality. And I, mm-hmm. maybe we are slower as in it not affecting us as much, but it, it definitely has affected us over here, that transition. How was it more different over there if it was different at all? The transition or just the way things are? Just quality of life, right working over there as a Japanese game developer versus a Western game developer. I mean, everyone that I spoke to seemed to seem to think it was pretty bad quality of life. Um, there's a stereotype that, that Japanese people are are famous for, right? Just right. staying in the office all the time. It's it's a cliche, um, but it's also, I think, uh, a kind of a cultural trait. Not necessarily that everybody has to be working really hard, but that everybody has to seem like they're working really hard. Mm. Um, that's the most important thing. So, so it ends up with like a lot of time in the office, even if people aren't necessarily doing like 10 times more work than, than you like than necessary. Right. It's kind of more the, the image of working really hard. That's, that's important. Um, and so I don't know, everyone that I spoke to and, and kind of like what the sense that I got about it was that it, in in a lot of ways, it was kind of worse. It, it was a lot of the things that we recognize, um, like that kind of um, crunch time, crunch time that's mandatory. Then there's also crunch time that's not mandatory, but it's like kind of socially enforced. Like it's like, oh no, you can go home, you know, but you're on the list if you go home. Like that kind of like sort of soft enforcement, right? Like, like everybody's sort of encouraging each other. Yeah. You feel weird if you go home at a normal time because nobody else is going at a normal time. You feel like, am I am I bad? Am I being bad? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think all of that is is present there and, and maybe, you know, kind of magnified a little bit by just sort of the, the culture in general. Yeah. Uh, and it's too bad because I, I'm a big believer in healthy developers and healthy development and i think that people should go home and and rest and recharge and and be effective the next day like after Mm -hmm. your 10th hour in the office you're not going to do anything that you couldn't do in 10 minutes the next day you know with a fresh mind so yeah um that that's something that just needs to continue to hopefully get get better um on both sides of the ocean yeah i I always Um, find it funny where when employees or employers uh, push their subtle but not so subtle ways of getting you in the office, like Larry and I have witnessed a list of people <laughs> where they would say these are the guys that are putting hard work at a presentation. It was like blatant, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like what? <laughs> Does he know what he's doing? <laughs> well, what's, right. what's worse is that, well, let's just call it spade a spade. Yeah. Uh, they went around one night, I yeah. think it was like 10 o'clock, yeah. right? On on one night, of one night period, yeah. and just took note of who was there, like on Wednesday, yeah. right? And then Friday, when we had the meeting, these are the people who were like, <laughs> like, damn, dude. <laughs> yeah. Over a 40-day period or something. Yeah. Like that one day. Anyway. Well, yeah. What's good is his name wasn't on the list because he only stayed that one night. <laughs> But anyways, yeah, so I mean great. these these are issues that are like happening on both sides. 
But I do feel like because Japanese market or Japanese development wasn't as big, they didn't have the opportunity to have like a few hits, Gears of War, God of War in between to help with the transition, to help, you know, the competition over there high. It was just everyone was, it was such a smaller market that, you know, people were just turning their heads, wondering what, what's going on and didn't have the chance to look at anyone as an, uh, as an example of how, how to change how to do it right yeah, yeah. How, to, how to do it. or better you know maybe yeah. there isn't a right but yeah do it better i will give them credit though them wanting to cross the ocean and work with western developers and you know try to i don't know if the, the best word to use is assimilate but at least adopt and integrate some of the the benefits of working with or or, or just you know implementing western style into their own style do you think that the opposite can be done in any way that, Hey, you know what? There are some things that they actually really do really well that the rest mm -hmm. of the world just is not there yet on. Like, are there some things that you think that we could adopt? I think so. Um, I also think it'll be kind of difficult to, to do so. Okay. Um, like I was saying before, I think Japanese developers are great at, at character. Um, mm -hmm. Like, like, like um, we were talking about fighting games earlier, mm -hmm. um, and you think about like kind of what the detail that goes into the characters of a of a fighting game like um, Guilty Gear, for example. Oh, yeah. Each one of those characters is so detailed and and so their own style and and so out there. Or mm -hmm. or a game like Persona, you know, the, any of the Persona games, like the characters feel so vivid and lifelike and they actually and they they wear fashion and and, mm -hmm. and things like they feel like um they feel real in a way that like sometimes western game characters don't don't feel very real like nobody mm -hmm. who knows anything about fashion made outfits for these characters that kind of thing yeah. <laughs> um so i th i think like there are things that we can learn but i i think they they have to come um on a piece by piece basis over the over the decades that i've been in games like i've seen um western companies try to set up shop in japan mm -hmm. um for a while there was an activision japan for a while there was an ea japan um and there's been there's been many more and a, a lot of it is like you know oh let's have let's have let's take advantage of all this great talent that's in japan and make them work for us in this certain way and it's always uh, it, it never works out like it's always um a lot of difficulty going back and forth with um, feedback, how to take feedback, what it means when I say, think about this or do this, and, and a lot of like um, uh, tough, like going back and forth sorts of things. Uh, the companies that have that have been able to, to do it well, I think, have just been doing it for a very long time and, and have it really worked out um, like Nintendo and the treehouse and and just like that consistent like back and forth and and consistent working together you can't just place one thing in the other context and and say like this is gonna this is gonna work right you have to you have to be sort of changing things for the format of the of the culture that you're in uh and then and then get something from there right create something out of that yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, it totally makes sense. Um, okay. So the one company that have somehow <laughs> lived through everything is, of course, OG Nintendo, right? So, so Nintendo, oh my God, is like a, like a slithery fish throughout. You know, every time you start to like write them off, they come back with a Pokemon or like a, a smartphone Mario that looks awesome or a Wii. 
right now it feels like every yeah. other cycle they're they're succeeding in some way right and they're they're seeing mm. through to the next generation what what is making them so resilient to the time to the times changing that makes them different yeah I, it's it's funny because earlier i said i said nintendo is like one of the most conservative companies and then i while i was saying that i was thinking about like the wii and the wii u and like the ds and the 3ds all of which are are pretty wacky <laughs> consoles if you think about them yeah. right like they're all actually really weird and they are all trying new things so it's it's kind of it's strange to kind of hold in your head that in in a lot of ways Nintendo is an incredibly traditional company um and and they do things in an incredibly traditional way that a lot of even a lot of other Japanese companies don't don't do right um so i mean i think that it's it's a very interesting combination of like a willingness to try these these sort of out there concepts and and yes. go all the way with them you know, and take them to market all the way to market instead of just yes. like playing around with a wacky prototype for a while and then being like, okay, but now we're going to do like the safe thing. Nintendo yeah. just just develops it into a full on product the whole way, yeah. um, no matter what they, anyone says. <laughs> right, right. Like, and maybe it works, and maybe it doesn't. And it's like kind of that. They're they're. I think one of the one of Nintendo's huge strengths and what's uh, helped them to survive for so long is sort of being okay with failure. Yeah. Um, they some you know they come out with products that don't quite work, and they're they're kind of like okay, well it, you know obviously it doesn't do what what we wanted it to, but we're not going to stop like we're not going to stop trying to come up with things that we think people will like. Yeah. Um, Nintendo has all these incredible failures like uh, you know Virtual Boy and things like that, um, and they all they brought them to market, and that's that's so much more than you can say about like almost any other. Co- console company um especially these days like things are things are a lot more buttoned down things are a lot more just like um here's the next console and it does these very expected things um so yeah being able to like kind of nintendo is is conservative enough with their money that they are able to sort of absorb failures like when the wii was doing really well they sort of saved up for a rainy day you know and then Mm -hmm. then they're able to to try the next thing, um, the Wii U, which maybe hasn't worked out as well as they wanted it to, but they're able to, you know, it's not, it's not like every new product that they that they make is like staking the company on that product. Yeah, I will I will co-sign on the fact that Nintendo is a company that's largely driven by innovation, tinkering, and experiments. But I think culturally, Japan still does very well there as well. Like when I look at the games. Uh, you remember a game called Vanquish? You played yes, Vanquish? Vanquish. I love Vanquish. Man, Vanquish, game. yes. Vanquish is like, man, that game was so dope. It, yeah, it was. It was really I good. won't sell my PS3 and I won't sell Vanquish. I have it and I'll pop it in like once every two years to like to throw down because <laughs> that game was, it was fun. It was full of action. I had this great sensation of speed and something like that coming from the West, I just don't see it happening, right? Like, over here, we're playing it very, very safe. We're like, man, if we have to spend $300 million on a game, it better be something that has a one, two, or a three already in existence. <laughs> yeah, and Vanquish That's really came out of nowhere. Yeah, and yeah, Exactly. Vanquish came out of nowhere and was like, look, we got this idea. We made it. It's got some boss fights. It's got great action. It's got mecha anime style. It, 
I wish there was a Vanquish too. I don't think I'll ever see it, but that game is- <laughs> yeah, I really like that game too. That's definitely a, a gem from from last generation. Yeah, I, I see a, a Japanese development team more likely to do re- originals after originals, and Western Market yeah. has never really been able to do that. Like, no company over here, I feel like, is able to swallow a a, a success and leave it alone. Mm-hmm. Right, they they're usually all right. We got to make number two now, and Platinum yeah. Games mm-hmm. is kind of made up of a team that used to make like Ico and and stuff. Right? Is that true, or is it another mm-hmm. team that I'm thinking about? But like they they oh. they're pretty much synonymous with teams like that 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 they crank out originals after originals, and especially in the PS2 era. And that's pretty much why I really love that era. A lot of game companies would be making like new ideas after new ideas. Because yeah, there were a lot of a lot of those. Yep, a lot of like trial, trying new, new, new titles instead of just trying to only ever do the franchise thing. Yeah, franchise you know? is very Western, in my opinion. <laughs> I I think well because it was pioneered a lot by Activision, for example, like the whole like annualize the franchise and stuff like that. Yeah, that was really um, started in large part by by Activision like oh we have this thing called Call of Duty that people like let's just make one of those every year like now every year there's just a new Call of Duty right mm-hmm. um i feel like prior to that kind of thinking that just wasn't there in the same uh and with the same like urgency of like oh there's got to be a new a new Call of Duty on the on the shelves every mm-hmm. every year yeah and i felt like there was a certain point um where trilogies sure is forgivable but then right around Gears of War 4 or God of War 4, like the same year, they just like, uh, we're just going to forego that trilogy thing and start making four, yeah. five, and six. It's like, oh, didn't know you can do that. <laughs> it felt like a rule was broken That's that year. Right, because four seemed like a weird number, right? Yeah. It used to be just like, yeah, one, two, three, bam. That was like the, the good. Yeah. yeah, same story, same premise, slightly newish enemies. Like, there's only so many times that you can absorb that into your fan base, right? Final Fantasy, let's look at them. For them, it's like same universe-ish, but different sort of, story, yeah. different characters. There's just things that kind of remind you, like Chocobo, Phoenix Down. Like, I guess some of the some of the staples are in every game, but like it's supposedly like a whole new experience every time. New story, new conflicts, new enemies. Um, it's just some cameos by things that you you would recognize, right? Like that, I can do. I can deal with that. Um, but when you're like, "Hey, who is Mario in trouble with this time?" You know, like, "Hey, Kratos is you know going over to Indian myth- mythos now, and he and Shiva are about to throw down." You know, like it's yeah. <laughs> still very mad. <laughs> yeah, still very mad. <laughs> anyway. That's yeah. that's my problem with the franchise is like when you're just like giving us so Grand Theft Auto right like Grand Theft Auto is new character it's it's Los Santos it's you know uh, wherever you are Liberty City or you know they try to like Chinatown they kind of give you based in the the realm of Grand Theft Auto here is a unique story experience yeah that I can get down with a hundred percent hundred percent but the whole like okay let's uh, take what we made before and let's just add barely enough and then give it to them like yeah. I can't and Grand Theft Auto is it's like a technological piece like they kind of come out with a new console so like uh, being open world technology 
driving it, it its gameplay in a lot of ways. It, it's kind of beneficial to see. Well, I want to see how this goes with the next PS4, you know, PS5 or six or something. So, a lot more forgivable when it comes to that. <laughs> so. I'm just happy that we're getting a Red Dead that's based off all the technology and things that they built to make GTA Five. That's going to be dope. Yeah, should be. Good luck, Rockstar. <laughs> <laughs> Work hard. So we're getting to that point, and I kind of want to close with asking you this question. Where do you ever see uh, – are we going to always be at even with the Japanese market? Or is the Japanese market going to probably catch up? But do you ever see them kind of reclaiming their their throne in the future? Mm throne is a is a interesting way to say it i don't think that japanese games will will dominate the game space and industry in the way that they used to i think our you know the age that we are our childhood was definitely like those those games um like like uh, like you were saying are, are the nintendo games and the sega games and and all of that like almost universally came from Japan in a lot of ways. If you played console yeah. games, you were playing Japanese games um, for that for that stretch of time. And um, gaming today is just more global. I think that the Japanese games are always going to be um, play an important role in, in games and they're always, you know, there's always going to be cool stuff coming from Japan. But uh, gaming itself has, you know, comes from all over and there are great games made uh, everywhere, even from, you know, surprising places that you hadn't thought of before, right? Like, games that look great and you you look at the you look at the developer and they're in Bulgaria or they're in where, wherever, like, like Games can come from so many different places now because the technology is more available. Um, there's there's just more there's more people playing games, so there are bigger markets. Um, so I don't I don't think it'll ever be it'll ever be like Japan will will suddenly come back to some incredibly central role like it once had. That was just kind of in a lot of ways it was sort of an accident of of just the way things were at that time. Um, which is not to say that yeah, it won't you know. Japanese games won't still continue to be extremely important. So no more Barrett, my first black friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can, and we, you know, and we can hope that that things are improving on on yeah. on, on that front. I need. I think some cool black people need to move to Japan, or like <laughs> we should send them like all the Fresh Prince of Bel Air and like freaking but that, yeah, like, so, like, they, they do need, like. Yeah, I mean, I think like having having people on those teams is gonna is gonna be huge, right? And I think that like now more than ever, um, like non Japanese are are working in Japan. Like it's more common. There's more um, precedent for it. Um, Japanese people may be a little bit better about like knowing how to deal with that too mm -hmm. in a way um, there's a lot of kind of stuff going on in the larger cultural uh, sphere that I that I am also interested in um, because I don't know if I should have mentioned this at the very start but I'm I'm half Japanese my mom is uh, from Japan so that's another reason why I'm very interested in this stuff we're going to Tarantino so, this episode <laughs> start <laughs> Start at that. the very yeah, <laughs> and, and go right back. All right, I probably should have said that, but yeah, I, I think that um, so so one of my interests is just tracking this at a larger cultural level, and I do think that that things are changing, and that you know when if we have um, multicultural 
teams or more multicultural teams producing these kinds of things, um, they'll get better and better. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all down with that, man. Multicultural everything. That's my campaign slogan for the 20, whatever the next presidential 2020. 2020. When I run, I'm just going to say multicultural everything. Let's do this. Sounds good. Well, you know what? I'm just now looking at the clock. And I totally told you, or I think Brandon told you that we were going to give you something at the end of this podcast episode. Are you ready? Yes. So Brandon and I are going to be very quiet and we're going to turn over complete control of our audience for just enough time for you to promote, shout out, or draw awareness and attention to something that you really care about and think that people should know about. So the floor is yours, Mr. Burns. Okay. Well, um, like I mentioned at the beginning, I, right now I work for a small indie studio. Uh, it's called Zachtronics, and we just uh, we just published our game on it's on Steam Early Access, and it's called Shenzhen IO, uh, S H E N Z H E N. Uh, Shenzhen IO is a engineering puzzle game for for PC and Mac. Um, it's not for everybody. But uh, if the idea of learning how to write assembly language in order to solve puzzles appeals to you, you should check it out. Uh, mm-hmm. I did all the writing and, and music for it. Um, and uh, you play as an engineer who's moved to the city of Shenzhen, China, and you make these little electronic devices do things. So it's called Shenzhen IO. It's not for everybody, but uh, take a look and you can hear my music in the trailer. That's my little spiel. Uh, I have a website where I have other stuff that I've worked on. If you if you want to check it out, it's called Magical Wasteland, just all one word, dot com. And uh, my Twitter handle is Matthew Seiji, uh, Matthew, and then S E I J I. Yeah, right. that's it. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, and just in case you have a hard time spelling some of that, please go over to the GameDevUnchained.com website because it is in the show notes. Yes. And wait, since I'm the only one on the microphone right now, and I'm always first to do this, Larry Charles, I just want to thank you, Mr. Matt, for coming by. Good night. Hey, wait up, Larry. I am about to be out, too. Thank you, Matthew, for joining us this week. I am out. Thank you. I don't know what else to say. (laughs) If you enjoyed this podcast and you want to stay in touch or continue to follow our developments, then you need to go to facebook.com forward slash game dev unchained and drop a like and stay in touch. You can also get the direct feed for this podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash game dev unchained.